0: You yeah. used to call me on the cell phone.
1: You know Clint Eastwood famously never yells "action" on set because, as an actor himself, he has the theory that saying "action," you know, it's such a harsh tough word it breaks actors internal concentration so what he typically does is say something like when you're ready you know that's actually true
2: and so is this a parable about how instead of saying, okay, we're rolling or something like that, you just need to have the mics running when I come back into the studio? I guess it started that way. But then I was also
1: thinking, like, if I were a famous film director, you see, when he says it, it makes sense to me. And I think he he's right. A- action. That's really harsh. That would... Excuse that me. Would spook... I, I am
2: i am the Clint Eastwood of podcasting. Yeah, that would spook the horses.
1: <laughs> but then if I were a film director and I, I decided to do it like he does, I think everyone would look at me and say, what do you... Do you think you're Clint Eastwood? Like, you're ripping off Clint Eastwood? So I think I would probably just say action, like anyone.
2: Well, the point is, uh, we are rolling. Welcome back. Or at least I think we are.
1: Welcome (laughs) back to Michael and us. I'm Will Sloan. Here as always with.
2: Yeah, Luke Savage. Welcome back, folks. Uh, It's Victoria Day. Uh, The nation is celebrating uh, our great 19th century monarch. Big day for Prince King Charles as well. Yeah,
1: mere weeks after celebrating
2: our great 21st century monarch. That's right. So it's a stat holiday in Canada, but we're in the studio. Uh, There is no natural light around us right now. Uh, There's a big sign that says innovation over us for reasons that I won't go into.
1: There are several different studios that we record in. So there's the Gore Lieberman studios, (laughs) where the bulk of our episodes (laughs) have been done. There's the Dalton McGinty (laughs) Center for Sensible Governance, where some episodes have been done. And here we're in the General Wesley Clark headquarters, which is a kind of like bigger complex that facilitates, you know, cross-pollination and collaboration between a lot of different enterprises. That's
2: right. Synergy, which is something that you know, it's a philosophy we've always taken close to heart here at Michael and
1: It just feels great to be part of something.
2: <laughs> but so uh, you've been away. I haven't seen you since, well, I guess it hasn't been that long. It was Friday in at the Gore Lieberman Studios. But, yeah, that's right. <laughs> but You're back. Tell us what you were doing.
1: What a jet setter I am <laughs> now, aren't I? Uh, yeah, I was in the greater Boston area for the weekend. I was going to the and extravaganza. Folks who are not willheads on the podcast. You know, people who are Luke heads. Might yeah. Not... If you're
2: not coming here from the important Cinema Club podcast, this yeah. might need a bit of exposition.
1: It's an annual event held by the New England-based singer-songwriter filmmaker Matt Farley. Who is Matt Farley? You ask. He is the most prolific songwriter in the world. He's written. 24,000 songs and counting and you can find virtually all of them on Spotify, all the major platforms. Many of them are written under pseudonyms like paparazzi and the photogs, the toilet bowl cleaners, the man who sings about towns and cities I think is one of his popular ones as well. Uh, (laughs) Again, if you haven't heard me say this before, because I've made him my life's work.
2: (laughs) Uh, Yes, Will Will has uh, published in fact a book of interviews with Mr. Farley. I've
1: literally written the book on Matt Farley. He figured out over a decade ago that the only songs that he was doing that were getting clicks on Spotify were the novelty songs and some of them the successful ones would make $2 a year and he figured well if you multiply $2 by (laughs) 20,000 songs that works into an income (laughs) he does do serious music as well we heard quite a bit of it on the weekend but he's figured out what people search once they're done looking for the songs they actually want to hear they search nonsense words so I think his most popular song is called The poop song Billie Eilish herself uh, recorded a TikTok of her listening to it. Uh, Songs with the names of celebrities, Kris Jenner recently (laughs) put
2: it in a TikTok, Yeah.
1: yeah, as well as you know, songs with food in the names. Every town and city he's done one on, and in fact, he recently blew up. Uh, there have been a spate of media profiles about him I think there's one in HuffPost last week about his songs and you know the songs that he does about towns and cities are like he'll pull up the Wikipedia page and be like Ooh Branson Missouri you're a really nice place to live your population is you know like I mean some of his novelty songs are really catchy though and you know he did a five hour concert on the weekend and hearing him do his Timothy Chalamet song with <laughs> with a band and him, him giving the full energy I mean it it was really a sight to behold but there's a,
2: another important detail about uh matt farley you haven't mentioned though which is that he is a filmmaker as well and you introduced me a few years ago to his uh autobiographical film local legends which honestly is a pretty special piece of work i think we should have him on sometime to talk about local legends i'd love to i'd love to share local legends with the world if you haven't done it on your other podcast no, listen already. no
1: every venue i want to share farley,
2: come on michael and us <laughs>
1: I've said this before, but if you, the listener, watch only one movie on my recommendation, put your faith in my hands, watch Local Legends. You can find it, I think it's on Vimeo, whatever the rental price is, just watch it.
2: Give them the, like, capsule pitch that you use to sell me on it, and I will tell you, folks, this is an unusual film, but stay with it for 10 or 15 minutes, and you'll be pulled in. It's really special.
1: I think it's at least one of the greatest movies ever made about being an artist. It's a movie about someone who has always dreamed of making their art their life, figuring out a way to do it, and then also having that art be, like, novelty songs, you know, becoming becoming your own businessman. But also it's like it's very funny. It's a movie that should be in that pantheon of like, you know
2: It should be like clerks or yeah, something. Or yeah. Slacker or one yeah, of those oh, like yeah,
1: Sundance yeah, like yeah. C- yeah. classic kind of comedy films. We're but, gonna
2: make it happen right here on this podcast. Yeah please just watch <laughs> local legends. But anyway it was it was awesome
1: being at his at his event because in all these films that he's made with Charlie Roxburgh who's the director of most of them, the two of them co write and produce and he stars in all of them. Over the years, and he's been making these movies for 20 years, he's built up this repertory company of, you know, friends and relatives and parents and parents' friends who act in these movies, and they're kind of like the greatest backyard movies ever made. They're like the movies that I used to make when I was a kid with, like, my dad in them or, or, you know, uncles. Hey, I
2: haven't seen those. (laughs) Maybe for elite tier. Will Sloan movie when? Just for the superdelegates only.
1: Elite elite (laughs) tier, new $100 patron tier. (laughs) It's like... The greatest ever child's backyard movie. It's like the kids went off to college. It's not yours. Yeah, yeah. oh, not mine. (laughs) Like, if if you like local legends, the next one you folks should watch is Don't Let the River Beast Get You, which is the one that I remember my friend Peter Kaplowski played it at the film festival. You know, the uh, film festival basically rejected festival submissions that he used to do every year. And the movie started and I was like, oh my God, I don't know about this one. And by the end of it, I was just like, I can't believe I care about the plot of this movie. This movie is fulfilling the promise of what a democratized digital cinema should be. And it's so funny. You know, these guys have a real point of view. But anyway, all the actors in those movies who are, again, like their dad, their dad's friends, you know, so many of them come to the event. And there's this one guy in particular named Kevin McGee, who used to be Matt Farley's boss at the day job that he used to have. Kevin McGee ran or was the the manager of this, like, group home for underprivileged youth. And, you know, he's like maybe 60-ish. He's in extremely good shape and has a deep, booming voice and carries a sort of air of authority about him. So he is often cast as, like, authority figures or villains in these movies. And he came to this event to sing two songs during the concert. He rolls in, and the people there, you know, I think Matt sold over 100 tickets this year. Uh, He said he sold 15 tickets to his first event like seven years ago. So it's a slow but steady. It's like like our
2: Patreon. (laughs) Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. (laughs) yeah.
1: And like our Patreon, we have to fight for everyone. Yeah, patreon.com slash Mike
2: Linus, by the way.
1: So Kevin McGee rolls in very sharply dressed. Like the room stops and everybody is going over to get pictures with him. Somebody had a Kevin McGee tattoo this year, which was incredible. McGee gets up on stage and like commands the room with the authority of a Frank Sinatra, sings two songs afterwards, takes some more photos for 15 more minutes, including one with me. And I was tongue-tied Talk. I've never been more starstruck. I didn't know. I didn't... So he said, what's your name? And I said, oh, I'm Will from Toronto. And he said, oh, yeah, yeah. The... I know Matt has a big uh, Canadian. I think some guys wrote a
2: book you, about You were like, well, yes, actually, uh, I wrote Moturn on Moturn. Maybe I... you've heard of it. He said, I think
1: some guys in Toronto wrote a wrote a book about him. And I said, oh, yeah, I, was... I, I wrote the book. And then I realized, oh, he's not impressed by that. He thinks that's weird. So I've never been more tongue-tied. You're,
2: you're like, you're a reply guy.
1: Yeah. a reply guy to this the worst reply guy. well what rocks about this event is kevin mcgee is this guy in new england who was matt farley's boss at his day job who now to like Somewhere between 500 and 1,000 people is a superstar, <laughs> and it does not interact with his life in any other way. It interacts with his life maybe 0.5% of the time, and these movies maybe take up 0.1% of his mental energy. It's like every six months they come and they say, Kevin, can we film with you for two hours? And he's like, sure, you know, as long as, uh, as, long as we get it done before my wife comes home. And he rolls into this room, and all of a sudden it's like Beatlemania for this for this guy. <laughs> <laughs> and that's amazing what Matt has been able to build. Pretty incredible.
2: I
0: eat a roast beef sandwich almost every day. With cheese
2: sauce and mayo, it's called the three-way. Some like it rare, others
0: well done. It doesn't matter just as long as you toast the bun.
2: Well, you've said that uh, being in Matt Farley's movies occupies uh, you a know, very small chunk of Kevin McGee's mental bandwidth. What if I told you that the same was true of America's Secretary of Transportation vis-a-vis his job? Would you believe me?
1: Now, which uh, Transportation Secretary would you be referring to?
2: (laughs) Well, this is, of course, uh, Mr. Pete Buttigieg. Um, You mean Buttigieg? Yeah, sorry, Buttigieg. But uh, so I saw this piece making the rounds uh, last week, and I assumed that, like, okay, this has to be an old profile. There has to be something here that I'm not understanding. Because there's absolutely no way that something like this could be written in earnest in the year of our Lord, 2023. Uh, But this piece, Pete Buttigieg loves God, beer, and his electric Mustang is absolutely real and I mean I, ha- I had to write about this because it, it has to be it has to be seen to be believed uh, it's mostly an interview but I just want to read from the intro that sort of tees up the interview uh, this piece by the way was written this interview was conducted by the writer Virginia Heffernan who um, well she has quite a few memorable turns of phrase but uh, the one that always stuck with me is back in 2016 when she described Hillary Clinton as quote an idea a world historical heroine light itself oh
1: wow I remember uh, that yeah I- I hate how many of these I remember. <laughs>
2: right, right, right. Um, but I, I, would, I would humbly submit this uh, Pete Buttigieg interview as you know another. I mean, it, to me, it's in it's in that tier of sort of you know great liberal hagiographic literature. Uh, it begins like this. The curious mind of Pete Buttigieg holds much of its functionality in reserve. Even as he discusses railroads and airlines down to the pointless data that is his current stock and trade, the U.S. Secretary of Transportation comes off like a Mensa black card holder who might have a secret go habit or a three-second Rubik's Cube solution or a knack for supplying off the top of his head the day of the week for a random date in 1404 along with a non-condescending history of the Julian and Gregorian calendars. Damn, that's
1: a lot of things, isn't <laughs> a
2: lot of things in there. And um, I just want to note here, because I think this is important. These aren't things that are true about him. He comes off like someone that you might associate these things with, (laughs) which I think is important. Because I mean, I don't know, just to to spoil the end here. I mean, really, the only way you can explain a profile like this, or this kind of completely fawning and non-critical way of, you know, talking about, you know, somebody who wields power as part of the executive branch of the United States government... The only context in which any of this kind of framing makes sense is one in which the way that you know certain people relate to politicians is just purely at the level of kind of you know fan fiction. And so what they want are not politicians to strike particular political positions and defend them or advance a particular agenda. It's just all about certain kinds of affectations, certain kinds of cultural signifiers, credentials being attached to them. And so this has been especially true of Buttigieg, who, to his credit, has got to be the most sort of media visible secretary of transportation well in modern history at least you know clearly somebody who lots of people would probably like to be run- i mean you see those polls where it's like oh uh you know a majority of democrats don't want joe biden to run and it's like you can take that as encouraging but i would guesstimate that uh, a certain chunk of those people probably just want this guy to run instead
1: well that's somebody from his office or someone from his team was like <laughs> hey how about we uh we, we get you out there in the media now how well,
2: about we see the thing is well i i I don't think his team must have do much work for people to come to them to write these kind of profiles. He definitely is very media conscious. And um, I'm sure pitches of that kind are going out. But in this case, I mean, I think this is completely earnest. And the thing is, most pitches sent out by politicians offices don't yield anything like this. You don't get a writer in the first paragraph saying like, Oh, my God, this guy's incredible. He only uses an iota of his godlike cognitive faculties for his job. He comes off like someone who can give you a non condescending history of the julian and gregorian calendars whatever whatever that means uh, i
1: i noticed that in the next paragraph here it mentions that the cabinet job requires only a modest portion of his cognitive powers which a couple months
2: ago didn't seem to be the case <laughs> yeah, uh, yeah. yeah but, i mean it, i mean uh, look look sorry to, this is just beating a dead horse at this point but it's like i you know I, ha- I can't bring this up without mentioning it this piece does not i mean you know there was like there's a cursory reference to he's when when he's not thinking about railroads it's like wait, what was he thinking Thinking just a few months ago about uh, railroads, what was? Well, I,
1: I have an answer to that question. Other mental facilities, no kidding, are apportioned to the Iliad, Puritan historiography, and Nausgard spring, though not in the original Norwegian. Slacker, uh, fortunately, he was willing to devote yet another apes in his cathedral mind. Good God. <laughs> To make his ideas about three mighty themes, neoliberalism, <laughs> masculinity, and Christianity, intelligible to me.
2: Oh, it also noted
1: in that paragraph earlier that his office is underfurnished.
2: That's right. You know, which it, is important. It's a good, it's a good detail. It's, it's underfurnished because the thing is, it's purely utilitarian. He has not have time to furnish it because, yeah, he's too busy. Uh, I don't know. He's furnishing <laughs> his mind highways, and yeah, furnishing his mind, and then also thinking about the Iliad, which, as we all know, is something any smart grown adult is doing all the time. Now, in the next paragraph here, it mentions I actually didn't know this detail about Buttigieg. So I guess I got one thing from reading this profile. It says because Buttigieg at 41 is an old millennial, because he's a Rhodes scholar at Oxford, he got a first in PPE, uh, the trademark degree for Labour Party elites of the Tony Blair era. Because he worked for McKinsey, about uh, you know, you know the story, folks. Uh, I did not not know he'd done a PPE, which is uh, Virginia Heffernan correctly notes, is indeed the standard trajectory for a certain kind of insufferable new labor politician of a particular generation. You go and you study PPE, and then you work as something called a special advisor to a minister. And then even though you've done everything in your life in and around London, and you have nothing to do with it, they drop you into a red wall seat you have no cultural attachment to and you have a seat for life or that was the trajectory. So I didn't know that uh, Buttigieg had that same degree.
1: I'm tickled by this section, Buttigieg, whose father was a renowned Marxist scholar, we all knew that, was himself a devotee of Senator Bernie Sanders as a young man. He now recognizes that the persistence of far-right ideology, with its masculinist and anti-democratic preoccupations, is part of the reason that neoliberalism has come undone.
2: You know what's brilliant about the second sentence and the first sentence is the second one doesn't seem to follow at all from the first sentence. It's like, he was a devotee of Bernie Sanders as a young man. He now recognizes that the Persistence of far right ideology with its masculine and anti democratic. Sorry, what? It's setting
1: you up for he, okay, he was a devotee of Bernie yeah. Sanders. He came from a family of Marxists, mm-hmm. but where was the education of an idealist? Uh-huh. Well, it turns out it didn't actually happen. <laughs> uh, in fact, he integrated all of that into a better understanding of neoliberalism. You know,
2: a friend of the show, uh, Jacobin's Micah Utrecht, wrote a piece several years ago when that teenage Pete Buttigieg thing about Bernie 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 Sanders was discovered. And as I recall, he had a pretty clever reading of it where if you actually read between the lines, it's actually kind of a critique of Bernie Sanders. I don't remember the details. I remember being a fun little read. We've almost read through the uh, entirety of the introduction here, but I really like what she does at the end where she says, uh, he also talked about his faith. Lefties these days are said to be less religious than right-wing evangelicals, but between Buttigieg, whose Episcopalianism grounds his decision-making, and his boss, President Joe Biden, whose robust Catholicism drives in sincere effort to revive America's soul, perhaps a religious left is rising again. I love the idea of Buttigieg and Joe Biden, who both have like different versions of a sort of weepy liberal Christianity. I love the idea that this is emblematic of a religious left that is rising again. There is a
1: religious left. It's called uh, Trad Catholicism.
2: (laughs) (laughs) Well, so the last third of this interview is actually taken up with, you know, a discussion of faith. The one part of the interview that made me laugh out loud is when Buttigieg is asked, running the Department of Transportation seems to suit you. Are there more ways the challenges of transportation speak to your spiritual side? So by the way, a lot of the questions are like this, where it's like, Mr. Burns, your poll numbers just keep going up. How do you stay so popular? But then he replies to that, there's just a lot in the scriptural tradition around journeys, around roads, right? The conversion of St. Paul happens on the road. I think we're all nearer to our spiritual potential. Christ himself went from (laughs) Bethlehem to Jerusalem. He's pointing the best part. I think we we're all near to our spiritual potential when we're on the move. <laughs> so there is one part, you know, for all this kind of the way that it's teed up is like we get, you know, we have we had this this deep and earnest discussion about how uh, Episcopalianism grounds his decision making. This is the closest we get to any description of how that happens. He says, when you're making public policy, you're often asking yourself, how does this choice help people who would have the least going for them? So that's part of it. A philosophy Buttigieg and Biden applied all too well to overworked rail workers being exploited by Warren Buffett and other rail barons and lacking sick days. Yeah, what can I do for you? Okay, picture a cell phone and an email
1: machine all in one thing. There is a free wireless internet signal
0: all across North America and nobody has figured out how to use it. It's like the force. Sorry, have you seen Star Wars? No.
1: That guy is sketchy. I don't think he's sketchy. The guy's a shark. I know how to market it, and I know who we can sell it to. But I want 50% of the company, and I've got to be CEO. I don't know who you think you are, but deal. Are you joking? Well, we have one guiding philosophy here at the General Wesley Clark headquarters, and it's always be closing. We have another business movie to talk about, another in the growing wave of films about the rise and or fall of a big recognizable brand. Movies that have emerged in the wake of the social network.
2: Yeah, well, you know, Will, this very much feels like it's going to be a companion episode to our episode on uh, the Ben Affleck movie, Air, about a month or so ago. Not only because this is another installment of Michael and us at the movies, but also because it, it definitely fits into uh, you know, the canon, which I think you yourself named on that episode. Uh, you dubbed it social network exploitation, and that's very much kind of the vein in which uh, this this film takes place.
1: And this film is called Blackberry. It's a brand new Canadian film by the young Canadian filmmaker Matt Johnson, whose previous movies are The Dirties and Operation Avalanche. Some may be familiar with his cultishly beloved TV show, Nirvana, The Band, The Show.
2: And I just, I just want to be clear, unlike the movie, Air, this movie is good.
1: <laughs> I really enjoyed this movie. Really
2: fun. Yeah. <laughs> what? How crazy to go to a
1: Michael and us at the movies and enjoy it.
2: Yeah, that actually might be a first, at least for a while. Um, because it was a Michael and us at the movies. I want to just say a few things about the film going experience. We, we showed up at the designated time. I mean, the, the film was supposed to start at twelve oh five, and we thought, you know, I don't know, we'll get there ten minutes early. Will will get his bag of popcorn that's like the size of a bucket, and then he'll assure me. That he doesn't eat like this all the time and it's just when uh, we're out on a field trip
1: well I mean listen folks when you're dealing with Luke Savage over here who you know must have body image issues that he's working through (laughs) and so the mere sight of someone else eating is (laughs) disgusting to him
2: when you're dealing with a co-host who works out and it makes you insecure no I clearly do you see me stopping (laughs) eating McDonald's
1: no I I bring out my bag of McDonald's and I I weather your glare your evil eye As as I sit there with my, you know, um, intermittent my,
2: fasting my, my, or some sick yeah. thing you're doing now, some grotesque, you know, <laughs> torture you're putting your body through. Well, so anyway, we, we, we went and got our food and, you know, we thought, OK, we're showing up right on time. We must have watched about 35 minutes of ads. It was brutal. I
1: I know. And look, folks, you're going to think that, oh, complaining about the ads before the movies is old hat. But I think we don't complain about them enough. We
2: need to reclaim complaining about the ads, normalize complaining about the ads.
1: I don't hear as many complaints as I used to. And I think that's because as society, we've just been beaten into submission by this. And I'm just saying- The
2: horizons of possibility. We live live at the end of history. The horizons of possibility have been foreclosed.
1: At the Scotiabank Theater in Toronto. the historic <laughs> Scotiabank Theater.
2: We saw the same commercial for Phantom. We, we, saw, we saw the Phantom commercial twice, yeah. yeah. We also saw, uh, there's a Coke commercial where it's like, Coca-Cola, ever heard of it? And it's brought to you by uh, Gigi Hadid. Uh, there was something about Amazon Prime. Uh, oh, and then there was Shame on favorite. Gigi Hadid, by the way.
1: <laughs> Let's also bring back like Bill Hicks' critique of celebrities. Like, what do you say about Jay Leno calling him a, a Doritos eating motherfucker?
2: <laughs> my personal favorite was the ad, which by the way, I think we also saw twice I don't think I'm dreaming this But the ad for this There's like apparently A new Transformers movie Which as you As you correctly said afterwards Like it feels like Such a vintage product At this point Like it feels like The Blackberry of like You know this kind of blockbuster You referred to it As a non-gentrified blockbuster
1: Well yeah I mean I think those classic Michael Bay Transformers movies Oh
2: when you think about it Michael Bay is kind of An tour now
1: Yet another revolutionary take From the Michael and us podcast <laughs> Yeah Those those first couple that he directed were sort of before the Marvel Cinematic Universe took everything over, and that became the dominant mode. The Marvel Cinematic Universe, you know, the professional managerial class enjoy those movies. You know, they've got they've got Whedonisms, they've got politics, they've got fine actors and and smart stuff in them, and they and they have quality control. You know, whereas the Transformers movies were like proudly lowest common denominator. They were
2: proudly about
1: just assaulting the audience with spectacle. This,
2: this movie uh, it has, I guess, like a slogan. Optimus Prime keeps saying... It just keeps saying, let them come. Which, which delightful. <laughs> I laughed every time I heard, heard about it. I that so many times. I mean... Oh, you know what else I liked about that trailer was that they have all these really serious talking head interviews with the actors who are, like, explaining their characters in the most self-serious way. Oh, yeah. In, in the pre-show. And then you're... And then you're seeing what the movie is the
1: other trailer that i really loved was and i don't remember the title of it but that movie that robert de niro is in with uh he plays oh, an, yeah. an italian Black, father right. and his son is some alleged italian american comedian who is allegedly popular mm-hmm. i don't know entertainment is not centralized anymore you know allegedly the most popular comedian in the world can completely pass me by but it's it, called like you know uh gabagool dad and it's all about like <laughs> this. Is the trailer the other thing is
2: when you're when you will get i promise we'll get to blackberry soon we did have fun with the movie and there's a lot to talk about but the other thing about sitting through 35 minutes of ads is that it's too many ads it's too many trailers to sit through and you realize that they all have the exact same arc especially if they're these kind of light family movies gabagool dad or whatever that movie's called where yeah the first half of the trailer which has all this kind of whimsical chirpy upbeat music like, where, hey
0: my dad he's crazy I'm italian too. Whoa. <laughs> hey.
2: <laughs> hey i'm a dad and i'm italian and and, and you and you You're not going to be not Italian. Yeah, that's right. And then, you know, all of a sudden, like halfway through the music gets all serious and it's like. Uh, and family you gotta admit you gotta admit that
1: family is family folks
2: you're gonna come to this movie for laughs but you know there's a little bit of heart as well he may be the
1: gabagool daddy but he's still daddy and (laughs) at the end of the day you gotta respect that hey
2: hey I'm daddy oh my god so those are some of the trailers Uh, uh, yeah future episodes of Michael and us at the movies I'm sure
1: so Blackberry is about the rise and fall of Research in Motion the Waterloo based company that's Waterloo (laughs) Ontario folks that created the BlackBerry, the first modern smartphone that was eventually eclipsed by Apple. Now, this story has a special place in my heart because in the year 2007, the year of peak BlackBerry, the year that the Apple iPhone was announced. My family moved to the Waterloo region after I graduated high school.
2: Will is very much a product of the innovation culture (laughs) that flourished in the Tri-Cities area around that time. Oh, yeah.
1: I mean, Research in Motion, (laughs) they were rock stars. They were the gods of Kitchener-Waterloo. And, you know, there were all these people like, you know, Stephen Hawking did a residence at, I think, the University of Waterloo for like... And they probably paid
2: for it or something, Oh
1: Well, somebody paid for it. I mean. Jim Balsillie, the co-CEO of Research in Motion... Founded the Balsillie School of International Affairs at the University of Waterloo. He founded this very successful think tank called CG, the Center for International Governance and Innovation, that would hold all sorts of events. More than that, I mean, Waterloo, I think, was kind of, uh, well, you know, at least from a uh, business tech perspective, quite a bit more dead before RIM's rise than it was after. I mean, Google had an office there, probably still has an office. I mean, still to this day, I mean, Waterloo has survived. the death of Research in Motion and, correct me if I'm wrong, but is still very much the Canadian, like, Tech innovation, uh, entrepreneurial, blah 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 headquarters, <laughs> and so yes, Jim Balsley means a great deal for me. You know, as as, as, a, not- as a as
2: a proud son of Kitchener, as, a,
1: as not as a native Kitchenerite, but as someone, no, but as a,
2: as a pilgrim who arrived with a covered wagon and a and a basket full of dreams. And to think, there in
1: 2007, I was being really mopey because my parents moved away from my boyhood home. And what I should have understood was they moved to the most exciting place in Canada (laughs) where the Blackberry was.
2: And this film, I mean, I guess you've, you've kind of alluded to this already. It is very much a Canadian film People you might recognize from Canadian TV. Jay Baruchel stars in it. Also, Mark Critch, and I thought a really good casting. Mark Critch of uh, This Hour is 22 Minutes plays the former NHL commissioner, Gary Bettman. There's also some non-Canadian faces who'll be familiar. The great actor, Saul Rubenick. Uh Carrie Elways was in this movie, apparently. Terrific. Where, which one was he? He's Carl Jankowski. He's the predator from oh, Palm of Pilot. Course. Yeah, of yeah. course. And also, uh, M- Michael
1: Ironside as Charles Purdy, the new COO who whips the technicians into line. He's terrific. That's the whole, right.
2: whole cast is great. Martin Donovan appears, Michelle Giroux, and many of you will probably also recognize the popular YouTuber uh, Sungwon Cho, who also makes an appearance.
1: The central players are, at the beginning, Mike Lazaridis, played by Jay Baruchel, Douglas Fregan, played by the director Matt Johnson. They are the founders, the co-founders of Research in Motion, which, as the film begins, is barely more than a hobby they're tech guys. Douglas Freegan is also a very particular kind of tech guy. He's
2: an 80s movie guy. <laughs> the worst kind of tech guy. <laughs> a really funny performance. This this, oh, yeah. this guy is I mean the the movie's funny throughout but uh, the director himself in this role is uh, very much kind of the comedic fulcrum I would say.
1: The two of them have no head for business but they figured out a revolutionary new way to do what all the major telecoms and tech companies have been trying to do. In layman's terms which are the only terms I know put a computer into a phone. Have a one-stop phone, text, email platform. The movie lays out the technology that they've hit on that others hadn't. Uh, yeah, I'm I'm not the one who can explain what this <laughs> is, but
2: but I, sw- I swear they do. But as you say, at the start of the movie, you know, it's I mean, they have a business and it's at, you know, the upstairs of a strip mall or something in, in Waterloo. But, you know, they're kind of just friends hanging out. You know, they spend a lot of time goofing around. It's very much a sort of pre-gentrified, you know, anarcho-tech culture. It's the kind of setting that features still in a lot of the sort of like lore of like these big companies companies, like, look where we came from, even though, you know, often that's not really true. Often what happened is that some capitalists came along and figured out how to monetize this and sort of wrenched it away from the people that actually created whatever the innovation was or made it happen. And that's very much what this film is about. I mean, it was closer. It's funny. It's closer to air in some ways than I expected, but with some subtle differences that make the impact radically distinct.
1: Well, one of those subtle differences occurs in one of the opening scenes, When Mike and Douglas come to one of the companies in the Waterloo region to pitch this new technology to Jim Balsillie, the third major character, played wonderfully by Glenn Howerton... The two of them deliver a very unprofessional pitch. He's unconvinced, but sees a glimmer of the potential. But as they're on their way out, he goes to a board meeting with this big American company that's come. And we catch a snatch of his speech where he says, listen, just because we're a Canadian company doesn't mean we don't know how to cheat on our taxes too. Mm -hmm. Uh, we, We pay them in Canada, but we pay them through Norway and it goes here and the government doesn't know if we're public or private. And that's basically all that we hear about it. But it establishes at the beginning and this is very crucial, making it distinct from Air and some of these other movies, you don't have to like these people. Yes. There's
2: also an important plot detail there, because in giving that presentation, he actually defies his boss, who's you know tasked some other poor chump overnight to come up with the tax pitch that they're going to give these guys from the states. But Belsilli isn't having any of it. And so he just decides, I'm going to give the presentation as well. And this seems to be at least one of the major factors in him getting fired. So when he goes back to the research in motion, folks, he tells them, if you let me be CEO of the company and give me a 50% stake, I will quit my job up right now it'll give you twenty thousand dollars and eventually they work out a different deal where he gets a smaller stake than that but of course you know his pitch to them isn't true like he actually does need (laughs) he needs something because you know he's just been fired
0: okay uh new plan everybody we are all going to chip in and build this thing tonight okay
2: Come back to the point you made. I mean, I think this is really it. You know, this is really the thing that distinguishes a film like this from something like Air, where even though it's detailing, you know, it's telling you the story, it's giving you a fictionalized account of uh the rise and in this case fall of a major corporate entity and the and the product associated with it, there really is such a difference in not having the film strike this default posture of reverence towards the thing itself, but also towards all of the people associated with it. I mean, one of the things that was so funny about Air is there's all this kind of like pomp and grandiosity and kind of beating over the head with the fact that like, look, Matt Damon isn't just in this for the money, okay? He's a real fan, okay? Mm -hmm. Nike isn't just a company, all right? They have an ethos. They're always playing offense. They're whatever. And you know what? Michael Jordan accepting this astronomical Changed detail history. Yeah. you know the fact that
1: michael jordan is making like a trillion dollars in, in income. passive income yeah, every think,
2: hour yeah.
1: is actually a victory for workers everywhere yeah
2: that's right yeah so it's got to spoon feed you all that shit but then also the fact that all of that all of that is just in the service of a shoe <laughs> is so funny. Whereas, you know, this film takes something else, which is, you know, a major consumer product for a brief time, a very popular one that has, you know, definitely laid the groundwork conceptually, at least, and kind of helped create the market for I mean, something there's two of there's two of them in the room with us right now. I've got one and you've got one, you know, Blackberry didn't become the thing, but it definitely helped sort of lay the groundwork for uh, the iPhone, which is probably the single most you know successful and widely used consumer product of all time, at least by some metrics. So that's another thing about this film in addition to kind of the lack of reverence that it has for some of the characters and particularly Ball Silly and this is why for me it just had more punch like you know in addition to the fact that it's very funny and all kinds of other things just better executed in all kinds of different ways There, there is just a little more at stake here I think this is not a film about like oh we we invented the idea of, of a, a celebrity branded yeah, shoe we invented a particular way of branding a basketball shoe
1: <laughs> and because the stakes are higher it doesn't really have to sell you that much on it you go into the theater understanding. Yeah, you know the, what
2: the Blackberry is. And and
1: the importance of what a smartphone is. It's got to the point where it kind of doesn't even matter whether it's good or bad. It has radically restructured society.
2: Thinking about it, I mean, something else that I think makes the film more interesting than something like Air and many other things in this kind of subgenre is the fact that it, you know, it hit a wall, it crashed uh, stupendously and quickly. So this isn't a film where at the end, you know, as you did with Air, where you get, or uh, what's that McDonald's movie? The that- the founder, right? Where you get these kind of title cards that are like, you know, today, the product whose story you've just heard uh, makes millions of people happy all around the world. And the founder is given trillions of dollars to charity or whatever. None of that. This is a film about success for the first part of it. But more than that, it's a film about failure. And that's one of the conduits for its irreverence and one of the things that makes it so interesting.
1: Anyway, there's a reason why this genre of movie has become popular and successful. It's because these backroom deals and these like alliances between different types of people can very much be the stuff of drama. The relationship between Mike Lazaridis, who's the tech guy, and Jim Balsillie, who's the business guy. He's the
2: capitalist. He doesn't know anything about how the product actually works. He's There's a great scene where he, he ends up in a pitch meeting without Jay Baruchel who like, man, this was like, this nearly killed me. When they're going to the big meeting in New York, this is early in the movie, and Jay Baruchel's character has made this prototype, like just a hurried prototype overnight, and they're going to make this pitch i guess to verizon and he leaves the damn thing in the car he leaves it in the cab and so Balsilli is just there having to make the pitch himself and you know and it's he, all style yeah it's yeah pure style it's very much that kind of like don draper kind of shtick where it's like yeah blackberry it's toasted you know that imagine kind of thing. a phone that's a phone <laughs> yeah well yeah. you we're not selling cell phone minutes We're selling self-reliance or or whatever, but he doesn't know anything about how the product actually works. And then inevitably Jay Baruchel shows up and in a much less polished way kind of bails him out by explaining how it can actually be done.
1: And yeah, the relationship between those two characters, how they complement each other, and how this wouldn't have been possible without the two of them applying their very distinct set of skills together. Yeah, that is the stuff of drama, as is the Matt Johnson character, Douglas Fregan, who's kind of the Steve Wozniak of the crew.
2: But so obviously, the company, you know, we see it get a lot bigger. And one of the main narrative arcs of the film is that we gradually see it shed the kind of more anarchic and, and less polished ethos, the kind of, uh, well, the kind of startup culture that it came out of It becomes regimented.
1: The failure in the movie is depicted as being on several fronts. The technicians, this, you know, anarchic crew of 80s movie guys who like having 80s movie night and, you know, are playing pinball and that sort of thing during working hours. As the company becomes bigger and as more and more demands are put on the technology, that kind of atmosphere is no longer sustainable. The hours actually do have to be spent figuring out, well, how do do we get more users on the system?
2: Well, and moreover, greater and greater risks have to be taken. And that's one of the things that ultimately sunk the company because, you know, as we see depicted in the film, there's a certain point where they just hit a wall and they don't have the in house, you know, the, the engineering capacity to do the kind of miniaturization they need in order to solve certain technical problems and be able to put more phones on the same network like they're basically hitting us they basically hit a ceiling for you know if we sell any more phones and the phones are on the same network the network's going to crash so Jay Baruchel's character you know tells Paul Silly well there are people who can do this and he just lists off all the main engineers of the big telecom companies and then Paul Silly goes around and just offers these people huge sums of money and in the process it turns out he violates uh, SEC rules he offers them all $10 million in stock that doesn't exist yet. Stock that will exist. He's going to backdate the stock. So it's it's just stock fraud.
1: So the failure is partly that. You know, the federal government starts looking at the books. It's partly that the sort of unique conditions under which this technology was originally made. The fact that these technicians were willing to work 80 hours a week because, you know... 40 of those hours were spent on 80s movie night or that sort of thing. That atmosphere is killed. And also, one of the funny strands that happens, and which I also remember as this was happening in real time, maybe you do too, is Jim Balsillie wants to buy an NHL team. He wants to buy the Pittsburgh Penguins. And he's also... uh,
2: Relocate them to Hamilton, Ontario. Yeah. And he wants to buy Cops
1: Coliseum in Hamilton. And as I recall, he was quite open about these plans. Like, word about this got out pretty much... Long before the deal ever did. By the way, one of my favorite Canadian touches of the film is that we see a clip of Don Cherry. The... He's
2: talking about Jim Balsillie, how he's a patriot. Yeah, Jim Balsillie,
1: a, a good Canadian guy. He like he likes hockey. You know, Don Cherry, one of our official top ten greatest Canadians of all time, according to the CBC, like twenty years ago, yeah, along right?
2: With, along with Tommy Douglas. Yeah. <laughs> But I mean, I guess what Balsillie was trying to do within the NHL was sort of an extension of the cachet that Research in Motion acquired in Canada, because it was sort of a Canadian success story. That's how it was thought of. I, I do seem to recall one university class uh, I was in once where it was described as a Canadian champion.
1: Well, do you remember how cool it was that Barack Obama, the, the president, yeah,
2: right. he used the the, the
1: president of the United States, had a BlackBerry, even after the iPhone revolution, up until like, probably like 2011, <laughs> as late as then, Obama. <laughs> was was still tapping away at his BlackBerry. And that was, you had to hold that close to your heart as a Canadian.
2: Right, right. But so I think Silly, like his desire to bring, I mean, I, f- I think it fit the same ethos. His desire to bring an NHL team to Hamilton, Ontario was part of like, what economic nationalism used to mean in Canada was like, we're going to have the state kick out American businesses and nationalize our, our resources and run things democratically. That's what it used to mean. And now what it means is the state underwrites and subsidizes and supports in various ways through incentives and subsidies and all the rest of it you know a handful of private companies and then they actually kind of are are like actors that represent Canada the nation the nation state of Canada on the world stage and so I think it sort of fit that ethos, honestly. And, and I expect that's what, I, I mean, it seems like Jim Balsillie did like hockey, but I, I suspect that's what the calculation was based on. He wanted to have the Promethean
1: ambitions that uh, a great man uh, at his level is supposed to have. When you get to that level, you're supposed to buy hockey teams.
2: Yeah, and something you see him do a lot, which I think is uh, very germane to real life, and it's the same kind of pathology that afflicts a lot of these big tech guys, It's just this belief that technical limitations don't really exist because a handful of these guys, you know, end up feeling like, you know, they get rich quickly. They're associated with something that's successful. And what they think is, well, I just willed this into being. I took big risks. I always rolled hard sixes. There is literally no obstacle that cannot be overcome. You know, no physical or technical or scientific obstacle uh, that can't be overcome just through sheer strength of will. So throughout this film, just repeatedly, we see Jim Balsillie be confronted with some completely insurmountable, problem. And he's just sort of like, oh, well, Mike will handle this. You know, it's like all the nerds are always going to sort it out. There's always a class of nerds you can exploit uh, where you go out and buy an NHL team. And of course, eventually, this just does hit a wall and his, uh, you know, SEC violations catch up with him.
1: And as all this is going on, the company becomes complacent. The CEO has become complacent. Along comes Steve Jobs with the iPhone. And the minute the iPhone is announced, this is the death now for BlackBerry. BlackBerry doesn't have an equivalent product ready to go to stop the bleeding of the market share is slow to incorporate the iPhone's innovations. This is a spoiler-filled discussion, by the way, although it is a matter of public record. (laughs) I think we all remember BlackBerry.
2: Well, I don't think any plot details we can give out uh, will really spoil the film, because, I mean, so much of it really is kind of mood. I mean, this is a very funny film. I learned from a piece that Friend of the Show and a past guest, John Semley, wrote, a write-up he did on the movie. You know, he notes uh, various things about the way the camera kind of roves. It's, you know, kind of that single-camera style, you know, like something you might associate with, you know, the big short or succession or something like that. But apparently there was a lot of uh, kind of improvisation used in its conception. So John writes, Formerly, Blackberry is loose, almost improvisational. The camera roves, jitters, and pulls focus in an instant. The poppy humor and fly on the wall, hyper-realist style, combining compelling ways. Imagine an Edgar Wright movie lensed like a Ken Loach film. The performances feel similarly off the cuff. When Howerton's Ball Silly attempts to intimidate a boardroom by howling, I am from Waterloo, where the vampires hang out. One of the funniest lines in the movie. The line feels snatched out of thin air. I like when things are moving, when things are a little chaotic, when things are slightly unpredictable, says Howerton. I think it creates an environment where you can create something that feels very real. It doesn't feel so calculated. Baruchel calls Johnson's process organic. He invites actors to go off books, supplying their own reactions based on their understanding of the characters. So, you know, as John kind of points out, in some ways, you know, this style of Filmmaking sort of mirrors the pre-gentrified uh, you know, culture that we see at BlackBerry, where it's, you know, it's a little anarchic and it's not uh, necessarily the most strictly efficient way of producing something, but it ultimately yields good results. Something else he notes, by the way, is what he calls uh, the production's liberal embrace of fair use copyright laws, which permit them to use uh, extended clips from Hollywood blockbusters like Raiders of the Lost Ark with having to fork over hefty licensing fees. I was wondering about that, actually.
0: Yeah. So, Jim, let's talk about the movie you do not come across well at all. Are you selling more phones? What the hell do you think I've been doing over here, Mike? We're in the middle of a hostile takeover! Why did you have somebody babysit you for? Okay. Your character, Goddammit! I mean, it's supposed to be you, arrogant, yeah. obsessed with getting an NHL team instead of running or co-running your company and yet you took part in the movie premiere. Uh, how accurate is that movie portrayal of you? Well I mean first of all I have to say how, re- how relieved I was they found someone so good looking to play me because <laughs> Len Howerton is one ha- handsome Tasmanian devil but the film is not an accurate per- portrayal of Rim at all nor my relationship with Mike.
2: So just to read one more uh, paragraph of John's here He writes, Blackberry, the company, may have grown too fast, lost its pluck But Blackberry, the movie, is a model of how to make something at scale without having to do the same Blackberry plays like the comedy equivalent of the industrious dorks pulling an all-nighter in the garage Attempting to re-engineer the world in their image Blackberry plays like the comedy equivalent of the industrious dorks pulling an all-nighter in the garage Attempting to re-engineer the world in their image And I think that sums it up It's a a fun film, and like us, you should go see it Uh, uh, I did want to ask you, Will, uh, because I don't think I've done this yet. But did you ever have a BlackBerry? No, I didn't. I went from a flip phone straight to an iPhone. Believe it or not, I actually had one. I had a work BlackBerry for about four months wow. in the summer of 2012. With the
1: little, did it have the keys on it? Did it, it did. It wow. had the
2: keys. It was right after the tail end of our uh, of our tenure at the Varsity, uh, the stu- student newspaper at the University of Toronto. It must have been just a few months after I got Twitter. I did not buy it, but I was working for a member of parliament at the time and I was filling in for someone else who was away and I got this BlackBerry and uh, yeah, I remember thinking it was really clunky and difficult to use. This was pre-smartphone era for me. I don't think I had a smartphone for another few years. Did you have a flip phone before that? Yes, I did. It was a cell phone that kind of slid apart where yeah. the keyboard I, like, I know exactly. Of, and I can I, conjure it, yeah. It's funny because I, I remember getting that and thinking that this was like the fanciest piece of technology you could imagine. I also remember that you could record video on it. Wow. Which was like absolutely mind-blowing to me. I think I still have that somewhere sitting in a drawer.
1: There was a scene in this movie where Jay Baruchel, you see his point of view as he's like trying to text on his Blackberry and it's like there are a limited number of buttons so when you oh, when you press man. one button it gives you the option of several different letters and that brought back awful sense memories. You well know? that's
2: so great. So that's a, that's the product that they, I'm forgetting what it was called now but that was the one where I think they had to return most of them and it was sort of the one they rushed to market to compete with the iPhone and so You know, this was the BlackBerry where it's like, okay, folks, the keyboard's gone, but the innovation is uh, we're going to do the the clicking noise when you 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 push a button on the screen, which like the iPhone just does that anyway now. Also, I don't think you can patent like a click on a screen. But by this point, and actually this is an important detail, which we forgot to mention, something that BlackBerry resisted for a long time was doing things cheaply, like doing what a lot of, you know, electronics and tech do, where they just outsource things to China to be cheaply made. And the thing about Jay Baruchel's character is that you know we hear him say early on in the movie Paul well, silly says to him do you know the expression don't let perfect be the enemy of the good that's our motto here on the podcast <laughs> right right and he replies, somebody to the effect of good enough is the enemy of humanity. And it, it really sets up the difference between his character and the Balsillie character because he really is concerned with good engineering and he wants this to work. He doesn't want to rush things to market. He doesn't want to do everything in response to market pressures. And what we see at the end of the film is him getting out a few of these disastrous blackberries, most of which I think were returned or recalled. And as Will said, yes, this like nightmarish scene, This <laughs> it's like actually anxiety induced to watch where you see him typing on a blackberry screen that's like an iphone screen except the keyboard is like one of those old like cell phone like keypads where each button has three characters on it and it just takes like a million years to type anything